I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open to Hebrews 7. We're going to read the whole chapter. I know it's somewhat lengthy, and yet it is um, the climax of the teaching on Melchizedek. The writer has introduced this figure, Melchizedek. You're probably like, Melchizedek who? Melchizedek. He introduced him back in chapter 5. He's going to unpack the mystery of Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's, That's the order of the priesthood that Jesus even now fills in glory, and he's going to impact what that means for us. Why is that so important to you as a Christian to know about this? And so um, follow along with me there as we read God's word. And before we do, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his blessing on it. Our Father, we know that you have ordained redemptive history so that we might look back into the pages of the Old Testament and And to see all of the riches of the hidden mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our faith may be built up, that we may see him who is the treasure hidden in the field, that we might sell all that we have and buy that field that we might have him, that pearl of great price. We pray that you would make us to see this morning the riches and the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord Jesus, that... We would know that we're in your presence and that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is an anchor for our souls. We pray, our God, that we would know the power of the truth of the gospel this morning in a fresh and a new way. Help us to pay attention, remove distracting thoughts, make us to be very attentive to the reading and preaching and hearing of your word, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1, there the writer again picking up now on a theme he started back in chapter 5, says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a, a tenth, a tithe, of everything he had. Now, this Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. 
For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, that is of Jesus, and here the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110.1, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath, but this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, Guarantor, sorry, of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I wonder if you've ever found yourself talking about someone in in history who was really great, somebody that you admire, and and maybe you said something about that person. I wonder if, if this person had lived a little bit longer what they could have accomplished. I've heard that many times in my life. I, I wonder what this athlete could have accomplished if they hadn't died so young. I wonder if this inventor, what they would have accomplished if they had the technology, if they lived in the day when we lived, if they had just lived a little bit longer. I wonder what this politician could have done. He was on the path to change if he had lived just a little bit longer, if we had had him for just a little bit longer. And I think that's helpful for us to wrestle with that the brevity of life and the limitations of anyone's life is something that's frustrating. It's frustrating to us because men and women can't accomplish what they want to accomplish, and oftentimes the people who we want to accomplish things can't accomplish them because their lives are cut short. That argument runs through Hebrews chapter 7 with regard to how we come to God and are safe with God, and the whole of the argument of the apostle here in Hebrews 7 is that Jesus' life never comes to an end. And because his life never comes to an end, what he does never comes to an end. And because he has the power of an indestructible life, that he can be the priest that you need and he does everything that you need. And at the end of this chapter are some of the sweetest words in all the Bible. 
He ever lives to make intercession for us. That he is an everlasting priest. You'll see that theme throughout when the writer quotes Psalm 110. He'll say that he is a priest forever because he doesn't die, because his life doesn't end. The priests in the Old Testament, the Levites, their lives end. One came, he died. Another came, he died. Another came, he died. And then Jesus came, and he came from a different priesthood, a different order. He came as the eternal son. He came with the power of an everlasting life. And the writer of Hebrews is going to hold that before us today. And he's going to say the only way that you're going to endure to the end is to know and be convinced of the things about Jesus Christ. And the only way you're going to understand those things is to understand that there was a man who lived 4,000 years ago, of whom we have about seven verses in the Bible, and this man is the most important man in helping you understand, know, and trust Jesus Christ more. And that man's name is Melchizedek. And so the writer, as he's already told us several times that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek to a people who were tempted to go back to Judaism, they were tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood. That's not a danger for any of you. And so you have to, you have to muster up your interest this morning in that. I realize probably none of you are in danger of going to Judaism. And yet the arguments that the writer is going to hold out have the same bearing on us, that you need to be convinced that you need a priest and that that priest has to be sinless. He has to be appointed by God. He has to be able to sacrifice for you and for your sins, and he has to live forever and make intercession for you forever. And the writer's going to say, that's the priest you have in Jesus, and we know that because we have the history of Melchizedek. Now, I'm sure you might be sitting there like, I don't get that. I don't understand how Melchizedek is that important. I don't understand why this man that we find in Genesis chapter 14 uh, verses 13 and following, is that important to us? Why, why this strange figure with a weird name is that important? Again, let me remind you, he is the single most important person in the Bible to build your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's an overstatement. He's greater than Abraham, this chapter is going to say. Melchizedek is that important, and that means we should want to dig in And we should understand why God the Holy Spirit has so fixated on this individual and how he is related to the Lord Jesus Christ and how the work of the Lord Jesus is highlighted and magnified by this guy, Melchizedek. Well, notice first we're going to see the importance of understanding Melchizedek's person there in verse 1 down through verse 9, what the writer is going to do is he's going to highlight the importance of Melchizedek in history. So this chapter is not about Melchizedek. Ultimately, this chapter is about Jesus. But in order to understand those truths about Jesus, we have to understand something about Melchizedek. And the writer says, this Melchizedek, first he tells us about him, he tells us his name. In Hebrew, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And the writer, notice, he'll pick up on that. He'll say that his name is translated there in verse 2, king of righteousness. And so we're told that this king who lived in the ancient Near East, was known as a righteous man. He, he was known as one who was committed to God, who, who was redeemed by God. He was one that represented righteous rule. Um, we don't know much about him. We, we know very little about him. Actually, if we go back to the book of Genesis and we start reading, 
We are just met with this strange figure. He comes out of nowhere. We're told that he's king of Salem. We're told that his name means king of righteousness. We're not told about his genealogy. We don't know where he came from. Some people speculated that he came from the descendants of Shem. Others speculate that he descended from one of Noah's other descendants. But the Holy Spirit has essentially told us that's not the point. You're not supposed to know where this man came from. And what he's told us about this man is that when Abraham came back from uh, defeating uh, the one king and the one confederacy, there were two ancient Near Eastern confederacies, and they were in a battle together. The king of Sodom had been taken. Lot had been taken, Abraham's nephew. Abraham had a vested interest in the people and the possessions, and these two confederacies went to battle against each other, and Abraham took his 318 men. He went out to battle. He defeated this mighty confederacy of five kings, five little kingdoms, five little nations, and he brought back all of the spoil, and he brought back all the people. He even brought back the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and Melchizedek meets him. He's probably passing through the area that would later become Jerusalem, because we're told that this Melchizedek was king of Salem. It's altogether right for us to assume he is one of the early kings of what would become Jerusalem. And we are told that this Melchizedek blessed Abraham, that he pronounced a priestly blessing over him, that Abraham gave him a tithe of everything that he had, and that Abraham and Melchizedek blessed God together. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to refresh Abraham, in his victory and in his journey. And that's all we're told about him. That's it. And then this Melchizedek resurfaces in Psalm 110 about 2,000 years later. He resurfaces. 4,000 years ago, he meets Abraham. We're just told this little thing. And then uh, under the Davidic kingdom, God the Holy Spirit told us that the Messiah who was going to come would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's the only second time we hear about it. And the book of Hebrews is really an exposition of Psalm 110. It's an exposition of Psalm 95. It's an exposition of Psalm 110. And here, the writer wants us to understand who this Melchizedek was. And notice that he tells us he was king of righteousness and he was king of Salem, which means king of peace. I think that's important because when we think about Jesus Christ, he is king of righteousness and he is king of peace. And those two things are actually antithetical to one another. When I was a young Christian, one of my friends, uh, it was during the Bush administration, he, uh, and during the war in Iraq in the early days, he, um, he said to me, trying to explain Melchizedek to me, he said, you see, if, if George Bush wanted to be president of righteousness and president of peace, he would have to bomb himself. I don't think you understand this, that righteousness is perfection, holiness, uprightness, blamelessness is perfection. It is God-like holiness and perfection. And we know that we are sinful. We're not just imperfect. We are unrighteous, the Bible says. That's what the Bible says about all men. We are unrighteous. We are ungodly. We are not like God. And that means that there can be no peace for us unless the wrath of God against unrighteousness is dealt with. And so there's this beautiful psalm, Psalm 85, where at the end of the psalm, uh, the, the writer, looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and suffer and would establish 
the kingdom of God and righteousness and would, it would give his people righteousness. He says in that psalm, righteousness and peace have met together. He's talking about at the cross. Righteousness and peace have met together. Now, I think that's interesting because when our Lord Jesus hung on the cross, they wrote over him, this is the king. This is the king. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He makes war against himself because of your unrighteousness. I think Melchizedek is such an amazing type of Jesus Christ that we can't even begin to plumb the depths of all there is in this man. And I think he was just a man who God set apart so early to prefigure the son of God. And so we're told he's king of righteousness. He is king of Salem. But the thing that he fixates on preeminently is not that he's the king and not that he's a type of Jesus as the king, but that he is priest of God most high. Now, a lot of questions get opened up, don't they? Because we would say, well, who made him a priest? How did people know God at this time? I mean, we know God was revealing himself to Abraham. They didn't have a Bible like you have. God was orally speaking to them. And and what we have to know is that at some point, Yahweh, God, came and he set apart this man, Melchizedek. He wasn't in the covenant line. To the best of our knowledge, there was no right that he had to the priesthood because with the Aaronic priesthood, if your dad was a priest, you were a priest. And if you were a priest, your son would be a priest. And if your son was a priest, his son would be a priest. And this Melchizedek doesn't have a pedigree that makes him a priest. And so we conclude that God set apart this man. He appointed him and called him and he created the very first priesthood in church history and human history. And that he made a special priesthood for this man. Notice the way the writer speaks of him. He says he is priest of the most high God. That he was not a priest like the pagan priests were, but he served the true and the living God. That God had called this one in ancient Near Eastern history to be the first priest. And in that sense, to show forth the priesthood of Jesus. That that early in human history, when God is dealing with Abraham, he is already preparing for us this history of Jesus as our great high priest. So that we would understand that it wasn't about being a Jew. It wasn't about being um, an Israelite. It's not about the Aaronic priesthood. It's not about the Levites. It's Levites. It's not about going to the temple. But that God had a plan for a priest before all of that who would be priest to God, who would intercede for people, and his name was Melchizedek. And notice that we're told in verse 3 something more about this man. We're told that he, he didn't have a genealogy. Now, if you want to understand your Bible, you read the book of Genesis. William Still says it is practically the genesis of every idea in the Bible. The book of Genesis is practically the genesis of every idea in the Bible. So if you want to understand your Bibles, if, if you're lost on all this right now, you've got to go back, you've got to read the book of Genesis, you've got to understand the foundation, the beginnings. And what you start to realize in the book of Genesis is that it's a book of genealogies. It's a book of genealogies. The first genealogy is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. That's what it says. This is the genealogy, where it came from, how the world got here, how the universe got here. And then it's the genealogy of Adam. And then it's the genealogy of Noah. And then it's the genealogy of Abraham. And, and everybody has a genealogy. And we're being told who came from who. And all of those genealogies are important because we're learning how God was dealing with his people. And in a book of genealogies... The most important person in it, other than God, is a guy named Melchizedek, and he doesn't have a genealogy. 
And the brilliance of the writer to the Hebrews is that he sees in a missing detail the riches of the wonders of the eternal Son of God. There's no explicit verse in Genesis that says Melchizedek didn't have a father and a mother. It doesn't say that. He probably did. Like it's a figure of speech when he says having no father or mother, he means we're not told who they were. He has no genealogy in a book of genealogies. And the brilliance, if you go back to Genesis 14, it never says that. And so one of the greatest truths of the eternality of Jesus Christ is taught in a passing, hidden observation by the writer of Hebrews. And if that doesn't teach you to study your Bible carefully, nothing will. Now, I hear people all the time say, show me, show me a verse. Well, there's no verse, but there's a missing genealogy. And the writer is going to say that Jesus is, a, is the antitype. He is who Melchizedek is pointing to. And Jesus did have a mother and he had a heavenly father. God was his father. Mary was his mother as the God man. And yet he has the power of an everlasting life. He had no beginning. He's the eternal son of God. He has no end. He died. He rose. He lives forever. He says, I am the one who lived and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And so Melchizedek who seemingly has no beginning and no end, is a picture of the one who doesn't have a beginning or an end. And the writer of Hebrews is so brilliant. Notice he says that having no beginning of days nor end of life, verse 3, resembling the Son of God, made like the Son of God. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying God created Melchizedek so that you could hear this sermon and know Jesus more. That God made Melchizedek to be a type of Jesus. God created this man, set him apart, gave him this ministry, didn't tell us where he came from so that you and I would be confident in the great high priest we have in Jesus. And he says that this man was made like, he was resembling, he wasn't the son of God. He resembled him. He was not identical to, he was like him. He was made like the son of God. He continues a priest forever. We'll notice that the writer in verse four now is going to bring all of this together and he's going to say, what's the implication? What is the implication of caring about who Melchizedek is? Why does it matter? Why should you care? Well, he says, consider how great this man was. This is a book of things that are better. The writer is always comparing and contrasting. He's always saying, this guy was better than this guy. Jesus is better than everybody. Jesus is better than the angels, Moses, Joshua, David, the temple, the Sabbath rest. He's better than everything. He's God. And and what he does is he takes these people back and he understands that in the minds of the Jews, there was nobody greater than Abraham. And what he's going to say is, oh no, there was one who was greater than Abraham. And that's Melchizedek. And he's going to say, because of who he was and because of the, the priesthood that God gave him and because of the history we have in Genesis 14, we see that he's better because he's the one that blesses Abraham. He's the one that blesses Abraham. Just as an aside, at this point, Abraham's not even a Jew. There are no Jews at this point in Genesis 14. Get that. That's important to you. Because the New Testament's going to say, in Christ, there's no more Jew or Gentile. But that Melchizedek was a universal priest. He was a priest for all men. He was a high priest of God universally. And that means before there was an Israel, God was already dealing with Gentiles. Because that's going to be his plan in the New Covenant. 
All that's going to be important to you so that you don't feel less than the Jews, so that you don't feel like somehow you get less blessings or somehow you have less privileges. You get all the same blessings because Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, notice that he tells us, see how great this man was. And what he's going to tell us is that this little detail where uh, Moses tells us that Abraham gave a tenth. He gave a tithe. Now, this was before the law. God didn't uh, encode legally that his people had to give a tenth to him. This is before that. And Abraham is found worshiping God and he's giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And what the writer's going to say, and you have to listen very carefully, he's going to say, actually, the Jewish priesthood came from Abraham, the Levites. And in a sense, when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, all of the Levites who received tithes from the people were really tithing to Melchizedek. And in that sense, everybody was giving to this priesthood and this order. And in a sense, he's saying, you need to see that there is no higher priesthood in human history than the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he's going to tell us that Jesus enters into that priesthood. And he becomes a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that means that everybody gives homage and worship and giving and everything to Jesus Christ. And that he is so superior that just as Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, Jesus is greater than everybody and deserves everyone's worship and praise. And so we see here why it's important for us to study the scripture. Again, I know there's a lot here. There's a lot. I'm sure you may only take away 1% of what you just heard. I get that. Um, I want to encourage you to take time to dig into the scriptures. Think if there's... One point here about knowing the person of Melchizedek is you're not going to get this unless you spend adequate time reading and meditating on scripture. Um, If you are the kind of person that just rushes through reading some devotional, you're never going to get this. You won't get it. It takes work. Um, It takes work to understand the depths of scripture. It takes prayerfulness. It takes care studying scripture diligently, going back and learning the Old Testament, learning those foundational things. I want to exhort you, as you think about what we've just talked about there, that you would do that, that you would take the time. I also want to point out that Melchizedek serves as an example that God can use anybody he wants at any time from no matter where they come from. That's true for you too. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you grew up in an atheist home. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Jehovah's Witness home. It doesn't matter where you grew up. God's grace works in whom and when he wants, and he did that with Melchizedek. He took a guy we know nothing about. He set him apart to be the greatest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And secondly, we want to understand something about Melchizedek's priesthood. Now notice when the writer starts to unpack this there in verse 11 and following, he's going to tell us about Uh, the betterness of Melchizedek's priesthood in relationship to the Levitical priesthood. Again, this is very important because Melchizedek's priesthood comes before the Levitical priesthood. If you're reading your Bible, there's two priesthoods. The majority of your Bible is taken up with the Levitical priesthood. Even when you come into the Gospels, you read about John the Baptist. His dad was a Levite, Zacharias. He was in the temple officiating. The Old Testament is permeated with teaching about the Levitical priesthood. And there's two priesthoods mentioned in the scriptures, Melchizedek's and Levi's, and Melchizedek's comes first. That's important. 
It's the first. It precedes the Levitical, and in that sense, it shows that it's more important. Now, notice what he says in verse 11. He says, now, if perfection had been unattainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? One thing that he's going to tell us is that um, the Levitical priesthood couldn't make anybody perfect. All the animal sacrifices couldn't do anything for your souls. It didn't change the hearts of the people at all. The priest going into the temple and making a sacrifice for himself and for the people didn't change anybody. It did nothing for them. It didn't make the worshipers perfect. It didn't cleanse their consciences. It didn't give them hearts that were right to God. And ultimately, it only prefigured Jesus Christ. It actually didn't accomplish anything. And we know that, the writer's going to tell us, because the animals kept being sacrificed. The animals were continually sacrificed and the priests kept coming and going. The animals kept being sacrificed, the priests kept coming and going, and the writer's going to say, if the Levitical priesthood could have made anybody perfect, that it would have continued forever. Now, it's very hard for me to make an application to you from that. I, I can imagine disinterest permeating through the congregation. Um, I would say this, Whatever your priest is today, whatever you find your identity in, whatever people um, you think represent you well, um, make you a better person, seem to mature you, complete you, that's what a priest was to do. He was to make the people better. Whatever, Whatever your priest is, it will fail you. It will fail you. Whoever you look up to for acceptance, for reputation, for um, to be seen as a, a more whole person, they will die. They will die. Um, just like the priesthood made nobody perfect in Israel, none of the priests that you have for yourselves will make you perfect. Um, there's something of the frailty and the weakness and the emptiness of everything but Jesus Christ. And what the writer is going to tell us is there was another order, and this order was the order of Melchizedek, and then another person had to fill that order, and that that order never ends, and that priesthood never ends. Notice what he says. He says, um, notice this in verse 16. He says that Christ has come, not by legal requirement, but by the power of an indestructible life. What he's saying is you need somebody You need somebody who is for you, who represents you before God. You need somebody who lives forever. You need someone to so do for you everything that you need and that will always be there into the ages of eternity. And that's the only way. That's the only way you'll be made perfect. How many songs there are? How many songs about love songs? I'm going to be with you forever. Forever, we're just going to be for it. No, no, <laughs> they will not be there forever. Just saw that uh, is George Strait just died. Is that right? George Jones shows how much I like country music. <laughs> George Jones just died, and uh, and they kept playing his song about leaving his love behind, and and that's the point. Is that we need someone who will never leave us behind. Someone that is always there. Bob Dylan used to sing about you want someone who will never let you down, who will always be there, who will die for you and more, who will die for you and more. That's Jesus Christ. 
That's Jesus. That's the point is that none of those priests could do anything for them. You need a priest. The priest that got appointed couldn't actually do what the people needed them to do. But there is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and he can do everything for you and he'll do it forever because he has the power of an indestructible life. That's the point of the resurrection of Jesus. Now notice, notice when the writer continues to tell us about this priesthood, he tells us several things. First, he tells us, as we've already noted, that um, the priesthood preceded the Levitical priesthood. Secondly, we saw that the priesthood never ends. And now, and this is important, that priesthood was appointed by God. How do I know? How do I know that there is a priest in Jesus who will always be there, who lives forever, who has sacrificed himself, who, who's never going to be replaced, who's never going to fail, who is greater than everybody. And what the writer says is he has been appointed by God. He was specially called by God. And notice he reaches back again to Psalm 110 and he sees where the father says to the son, you are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That means that ultimately it's not up to you to find a priest. It's not up to you to go out and find the priest that you need before God. And let me say this emphatically. I'm going to say this at the end again. If you try to get to God through anything else, you will go to hell forever. I don't care if it's not diplomatic. The only way to get to God is through the priest, Jesus Christ, And if you try to come to God through any other priest, whether it is the priest of your own good efforts, good works, some other religious teacher, whether it's Buddha, whether it's Muhammad, you will perish eternally and you will have no priest before God. And notice what the writer says. He tells us, he tells us uh, in verse 22 that this Jesus is the, is the surety of a better covenant, that he is the down payment that we know. When we, when we see Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture, we know that he's done everything that we needed and that he has, he has given himself as the sacrifice and that he has secured for us the blessings of the new covenant. He's going to tell you that the forgiveness of sins and that the law being written on your hearts are all because of the ministry of this priest and that because he can do those things and because he lives forever and because God has appointed him to do that, you can be confident, you can be confident that he's there for you. Even, and, and this is hard for us because one of the differences between the old covenant and the new is that you could go to the temple. You could see the temple. You could see the priest. You could see the sacrifice. You could walk up the holy mountain hill and you could see it. You could see the stones. It was visible. You could see everything that God had ordained there just like you see everything in this world, and the difference is you can't see Jesus except by faith. But that God has appointed him, he has fulfilled that role. And so let me talk to you briefly as we close about the importance of knowing Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's going to tell us at the end of this chapter several things. Number one, he's going to tell us he lives forever. We've talked about that. Secondly, he's going to tell us that he intercedes for his people. That one of the things that he always does... If you want to know what Jesus is doing in heaven, he's praying for you. That's what Jesus is doing in heaven. I don't know if you've ever thought about what is Jesus doing in heaven. Well, whatever he wants to do, that's for sure. But one thing the Bible tells us is that he is ever interceding for you if you're a believer before God. Now, I take great comfort when people pray for me. When I was 17 years old, um, starting to rebel, um, the godliest man I ever met 
Dr. John Skilton, was on his deathbed at 98. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary for about 50 years, and my dad had told Dr. Skilton about my rebellion and um, said, do you want to talk to him? And gave, handed the phone to me, and I remember just the shame I felt. And I'll never forget, John said, I'm praying for you. And I couldn't even talk to him. Just the shame and the guilt. But the comfort and the love and knowing that this man was praying for me. And he said, Christ can change you. How much more should you take comfort in the fact that your high priest, who is perfect and sinless, always prays for you? Think about that. He wants good for you. He knows your circumstances. He knows your burdens. He knows all the ins and outs of your life. He knows all of the things that you struggle with. He knows your weaknesses. He knows those things that you don't want to relinquish. He knows all the sin that you don't want to repent of. And he, if you are his, he prays for you so that those good things will happen to you in your life so that spiritual good will come to you. You have a priest who can change your heart. Think about that. The priest we're talking about can change you because he ever lives to intercede for you. Also, the writer tells us he's sinless. That's the kind of priest I want. I want a priest who is perfect. I want a priest who is holy, a priest who can represent me before God because of his sinlessness. Jesus is sinless. You have a sinless priest before God. That means however God deals with you is because he deals with him. That's good to have a sinless priest before God. We're told that Jesus in this section is the final sacrifice. Notice this. I love this. In verse 27, he has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus ended sacrifice in his death on the cross. If you ever witness to Jews, and I hope that you have opportunities to do so, ask them why they don't sacrifice anymore. The best answer I've gotten is the rabbis know. I'm sure they have an answer. (laughs) Well, the rabbi knows because he offered up himself. That's why. The rabbi knows. He offered himself once for all. He ended sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. I think there's an illusion here. Melchizedek is the first priest in human history. But he doesn't bring a bloody sacrifice. He doesn't bring a bloody sacrifice. He brings bread and wine. I think, I could be wrong, I think the fact that Genesis tells us that he brings the bread and the wine prefigures Jesus bringing the bread and the wine. And the reason the bread and the wine aren't bloody is because he would be the bloody sacrifice. He wouldn't have a sacrifice, he would be the sacrifice. He wouldn't bring a little lamb. He wouldn't bring a goat. He wouldn't bring some bull or ox or pigeon or turtle dove. He would bring himself. And he would say, I am your priest. I am your sacrifice. I want you to think about this. You don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to go to a physical temple to be accepted by God. You don't have to offer sacrifices every time you mess up, which is every day. Every day you mess up. You don't have to come on Sunday and bring a little lamb here and have it slaughtered on an altar and have it become the burnt offering for your sin. That happened in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to go to a priest because you go to him. He is priest. He is sacrifice. He is everything in himself. And 
The last thing the writer tells us is that he was appointed by God. Because at the end of the day, the priest you need is the priest that God appoints. I want you to think about that. What you need is what God appoints. That's the only thing God's going to accept. Nobody can take that to themselves. They can't make themselves a priest and make you acceptable before God. But God has appointed his son in the councils of eternity. He has said, my son will be the priest. He will be the one who intercedes for his people. He will have a power of an endless life. He will always represent them. And I'm going to say this as we close. I know there's a lot here. If you get this, if you get Hebrews 7, and you are coming to him, because that's what he says, that he is able to make intercession for all those who come to him. If you are coming to him, you have a priest who will be your priest for all of eternity, who will always represent you, who will never let you down, who died for you and more, who gave himself for you, who will never leave you nor forsake you. You have a priest who said before he went to the cross, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. If you are coming to him, be assured that you have an everlasting priest. You have a priest with the power of an endless life. There's nothing else you need. Listen, why, why, these are things you've heard a thousand times, probably some of you. Why is it so important for you to hear it again? Because our lives do not adequately reflect that we believe it. Our lives do not adequately reflect that we believe the truths of Hebrews 7. That's why you need to hear it again. That's why you need to understand who Melchizedek was. That's why you need to understand those truths about Jesus out of Hebrews 7. Um, I want to encourage you this week ahead to go back over these things. There's a lot here. It's way more than I could do in 40 minutes, 43 minutes. It's a longer sermon than usual. Way more than I could handle. Take time to get to know the everlasting priests that you have. Take time to get to know those truths about them. You know, it's interesting that of all the things the writer of Hebrews could have told these people to keep them from departing from Jesus, it was these truths about Jesus. All the things he could have told them. He didn't talk about his teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't talk about his miracles. He didn't talk about any of those things. He told you that what you need to keep you from departing from God is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you get that, if you get that spiritually, you will get it forever. You will get it eternally. You will be safe in these truths. Your soul will be grounded. It will be anchored if you get these truths. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to us. Let's pray. Father, we know that there are so many things in this chapter that we cannot cover. We know that we've covered many things, many things that are difficult, many things that we need you to open our eyes to and open our hearts to. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to grasp the greatness of our Lord Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, that you would help us to understand what that means for us as Christians, that we would not have an immature faith, that we would not have an immature knowledge of him, 
that we would not have an immature knowledge of your word, that you would establish us. Give us a hunger, O God. Give us a hunger for these truths and give us a hunger to be coming to him and feeding on him and living in light of who we are in him and what we have from him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.